The scripture that Kyle has selected for our reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians 2, 19 through 30, and I'm reading it from the English Standard Version. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, I am here this morning. That means the baby is not. So please keep Sarah in your prayers. She does have an appointment tomorrow to check on, uh, the, uh, on how the baby's doing. But she herself is doing quite well. And uh, we, we appreciate your prayers. Uh, this morning we're going to continue our study of the book of Philippians called Finding Joy in the Journey. It's been our objective these past, well, this is the eighth Sunday we've been in this series. We've been, it's been our objective to look in the book of Philippians and see how it's possible to have joy in some very difficult circumstances, under some very difficult conditions, or some challenging conditions might be a better way to say that. This morning, we're looking here at the last half of Philippians chapter 2, and if you paid attention to the reading just a moment ago, it seems almost like a section out of place. Here is, is, is Paul writing about his future plans, plans that would include his travels to Philippi once he's released from prison, but also his plans to send a couple of guys there, Timothy and Epaphroditus. This is the kind of information that you normally see at the end of one of Paul's letters, not in the middle. You can go to the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Ephesians. These are books where he gives his travel plans and his future itinerary, and he does it at the end of the letter, not the middle. So why is it here at the end of chapter 2, at the halfway point of this letter, that Paul feels inclined to start talking about future plans? I think it's because they're centered around these two individuals, and as he thought about Timothy and Epaphroditus, he thought about some individuals that modeled the kind of conduct he's been calling the Philippians to embrace. You have to remember that thus far in the letter... Paul has already addressed their complaining and their disputing. He's already said, hey, you've got to quit that stuff. He's recognizing that there's a problem in that congregation that he'll address more explicitly in chapter 4. And he's saying there's this divisiveness going on there, but particularly because of these two women. And I want you to understand that that's out of place. He calls on them in chapter 1 to live a life that's in keeping or in a manner keeping or a manner worthy of the gospel. 
And as he's writing to them his future plans here, or as he reflects, I should say, on Timothy and Epaphroditus, he realizes that these are two men who model the conduct that he wants the Philippians to embrace. And so he kind of has this aside in the midst of chapter 2. After he has called on the Philippians to, uh, to, to not be focused on their own interests, but to focus on the interests of others, after he's held up Jesus Christ as the model of someone who, with deferred interest, someone who humbled themselves and, 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 and was obedient to the point of death, after he's talked about all that, he remembers, oh, I'm about to send two incredible servants to Philippi. Their names are Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I think the point we can take away from this whole section, as we'll unpack this morning, is that there is indeed joy in service. Now, here's the thing. I preach a lot of sermons on service. Service is, is a repetitive theme in preaching. And we know its importance. We recognize its necessity. We get all that, but let's be realistic. Service is not always easy. In fact, some of the most important service you render is never going to be easy. Service can be difficult. Service can be, be embarrassing. Service can be uh, uh, costly. But that's what we're called to be, isn't it? Servants. That's the, the identity that Paul chose to reference more than any other title he had. Look at the start of most of his letters, and he's going to reference himself as a servant before he calls himself an apostle, or before he calls himself, uh, or before he makes reference to his authorship or anything like that. He's going to refer to himself as a servant because that's what we are first and foremost. Why did Jesus come to this earth? To serve, to be a servant, he declares. So there's this expectation of us that we're going to embrace servanthood. And Paul is using Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of great servants. Now here's the thing. Why is there joy in service if service is so difficult? How can there be joy in something that can be so challenging, embarrassing, costly? Well, for one, there's joy in service because servants are used. Here's what I want you to notice. When Paul launches into these descriptions of Timothy and Epaphroditus, he spends a lot of time commending these guys to the church in Philippi. The thing is, the church in Philippi knows these guys really well. Timothy had been there on a mission trip. Epaphroditus was sent by that congregation. They know these two guys, but Paul spends a lot of time commending them. And one of the first things he says, particularly about Timothy, appears in verse 20. And he says, he has no one like Timothy. Other translations say, I have no one like-minded, or, or I, I have no one else of kindred spirit. The point is that Timothy stands out. Timothy is exceptional. Timothy is special. Maybe that's why Paul used him so frequently. Some of the most difficult ministerial situations were situations that Paul sent Timothy to when Paul couldn't go himself. So Paul sent Timothy to establish and encourage the church in Thessalonica, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. He sent Timothy to troubleshoot some issues in Corinth and remind them of the ways of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. And that was a congregation with a lot of issues. He also sent Timothy to deal with false teachings and appoint leaders. And 
1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. So Timothy is always on assignment for Paul. If he's not with Paul somewhere, he's sent by Paul somewhere. Timothy was Paul's most utilized asset in ministry. And here's what I got to thinking about. I started thinking about how Scripture speaks of our usefulness. Timothy is frequently used by Paul, and there's joy to be found in being used because Scripture does not mince words about what will happen to those who are not useful in God's kingdom. Think about that statement Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 19. He says, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus has this tree metaphor going on. And he indicates that a good tree is going to produce fruit. A bad tree is not going to produce fruit. A good tree is going to be kept. A bad tree is going to be thrown away. What, what's his point? The point Jesus is making here is that an unproductive tree, that is a, a tree that's not producing fruit, will be removed. Jesus says something similar to this if you go over to John chapter 14. Right after he says, I am the vine and you are the branches, he then launches into an explanation uh, or, or into this gardening metaphor. And he says in John chapter 14 and verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Two things I notice in that passage. One, Jesus indicated that we glorify the Father by producing fruit. And two, we prove that we're disciples by producing fruit. So the big takeaway on these fruit-bearing tree analogies that Jesus utilizes is that producing fruit is a servant's objective. That's part of our mission. That's our call, to be fruit producers. And in that same John 14 passage, if you look at verse 2, Jesus said, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may, be, that it may bear more fruit. There's disciplinary measures in regards to whether or not you're producing fruit. If you're producing fruit, you're going to be pruned so you can keep producing fruit. If you're not producing fruit, you're going to be removed. That's twice now, whether you're looking at Matthew 7 or John 14, that's twice that Jesus said a non-fruit-producing tree is going to be removed. And if you really reflect on the Matthew 7 language, Jesus said every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you realize that the number one metaphor for hell is fire? Should we look at these passages about fruit, about trees, should we look at them and realize that there's a call for being useful behind them? Should we understand that if we're not producing fruit, if we're not fulfilling our role, if we're not doing what God expects of us as his servants, that it will have an impact on the day of judgment? There's another, story, there's another teaching of Jesus that comes to mind here. And it's one that I reference probably more than I need to. It's the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. 
Remember, there's this guy with one coin, the one-talent servant. And instead of going out and utilizing his resource to help further his master's kingdom, he hides it. He buries it. And he doesn't hear what the five-talent servant hears and what the two-talent servant hears. He never hears the statement that they hear. The master returns and says to them, Well done, good and faithful what? Servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because they took the resource they had received from the master and they used it to further the master's kingdom. That one-talent servant went and buried his. He did not use it. What did he hear? He heard the master tell him that he was wicked, he was lazy, and he was worthless. And then he was cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mentioned a moment ago that fire is the number one metaphor used in reference to hell throughout Scripture. There are two other metaphors associated with hell in Scripture. Darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, when I read this passage, when, when I look at the parable of the talents, I also see in it an indication that a failure to be useful in the kingdom, a failure to be a fruit producer in the kingdom, has eternal ramifications to it. So whether we're looking at the teaching about trees and fruit or we're looking at, about the, at the, t- the parable of the talents, we have these implications at the very least that usefulness in God's kingdom will be a factor on the day of judgment. There is joy in being a servant because you're being used. And the one thing you don't want to be on the day of judgment is useless. But there's also joy in service because servants are honored. Did you notice the way in which Paul honored Timothy and Paphroditus throughout this section? He compared Timothy to a son. He referred to Epaphroditus as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier in verse 25. He honored them with titles. He didn't just refer to them as as another disciple. He had very specific titles to associate with them. He he referenced them as if they're family. He referenced them as if they're co-workers, as if they're teammates. He is acknowledging their worth. He's honoring these two men by identifying them as more than mere disciples. And if you look at verse 29, Paul specifically instructed the church in Philippi to receive Epaphroditus in particular with all joy and honor such men. Paul wants the service of these two guys to be recognized and appreciated. Because if the church will look at them with that level of honor, then that means they're looking at these guys through the eyes of God. Consider for a moment some of the things Jesus said about servants. In in, uh, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 11, Jesus said, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 35, Jesus told the apostles, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. 
In Mark chapter 10, in verses 43 through 45, Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The point is that greatness and firstness, if you'll allow me to make up a term today, greatness and firstness are bestowed on those who practice service. Greatness and firstness are bestowed on those who practice service. Servants are to be honored because they have deliberately chosen not to prioritize themselves, not to seek glory for themselves, not to elevate their own interests. And in the grand scheme of things, servants will receive the ultimate honor. They will be rewarded with a residence in heaven. Because if you look at John's description of heaven in John chapter 22 and verse 3, he said that the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in heaven, and his servants shall serve him. For me, the big takeaway from that description of heaven is that heaven is a place reserved for servants. And that means there is joy in service because servants are honored with a place in heaven. There is joy in service. There is joy in service because you're useful, not useless. There's joy in service because there is honor ultimately paid out through the reward of heaven. But joy-filled service does require some things of you. Joy-filled service requires concern. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul said that he had no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The term translated genuine there comes from a word that carries the idea of legitimate. It means that Timothy's concern for the Christians in Philippi was not, a, not fleeting. It was not cliche. It was not passive. Timothy was genuinely, authentically, legitimately concerned for the Christians in Philippi. You know, I'm afraid that far too often my expression of concern for others lacks the genuineness of Timothy. That's not intentional. I, I'm not intentionally not genuine. I couldn't think of the ingenuine, disgenuine. I could, it's not that I'm intentionally lacking the genuineness. It's that I'm realizing there's a difference between general concern and genuine concern. I heard a story about a guy who was going door-to-door in a particular neighborhood trying to raise money for a family that was in need of some help to pay their bills. And he would go up to each house and say, I'm trying to raise money for a family in our neighborhood. The, the dad's out of work. The kids are hungry, and, and they're about to have their utilities cut off. And if they don't pay their rent, they're going to be kicked out of their house very soon. One lady was touched by the, uh, the man's aid being offered to this family, and she said, I will certainly give something, but may I ask who you are? He said, oh, I'm their landlord. That's not genuine concern. There is a difference between general concern and genuine concern, and I think the difference is best communicated by James when he addressed the relationship between faith and works in James chapter 2. Look at what he said, James chapter 2, between verses 14 and 16. He said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
I know this is focused on faith and works here, but think in the context of concern. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Concern, general concern, gives the cliché, passive, temporary response that we are so accustomed to. It sees somebody in need and goes, I'm really sorry that's happened to you. I'm praying for you. I'm not trying to say that's wrong. I'm trying to say genuine concern goes a step further. Genuine concern takes action. Genuine concern, instead of being a passive, cliched statement, decides it's going to do something. Genuine concern says, let me figure out how I can help you. And genuine concern doesn't just express that one time. Genuine concern follows up and it follows through. I think that's where the parable of the sheep and the goats comes into play. Another parable that I probably reference way too much. But when you think about that parable recorded in Matthew 25 as well, the goats were condemned because they were not genuinely concerned about others. They failed to feed the hungry. They failed to visit the sick. They failed to clothe the naked. They failed to welcome the stranger. And we're told that they went away into eternal punishment. Now, it's important to note that their punishment did not come about because they failed to acknowledge Christ. You can look at verse 44 of Matthew 25 and see that the goats, they acknowledged Christ as Lord. Their condemnation was not the result of disbelief. Their condemnation was the result of a failure to be genuinely, genuinely concerned about others to the point that they would do something about it. Do you have general concern or do you have genuine concern? I'm very good at the cliches. But do I ever step beyond that to a level of concern where I'm going to act on you for your benefit? See, Timothy showed us, or Timothy teaches us, that true joy-filled service necessitates that we have a genuine concern for others. An active, long-lasting concern for others. But Timothy also teaches us that service requires surrender. I think one of the most important statements in this section appears in verse 21, where Paul indicates that Timothy was different because he prioritized Christ's interests above his own. Now, Paul's already modeled this himself. If you go back to chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul was more concerned about the advancement of the gospel than he was his imprisonment or the hardships that other Christians were putting on him. And Paul held up Christ earlier in chapter 2 as one who, who put obedience ahead of his own interests, of his own equality with God. And what Paul is saying is that Timothy falls in line with himself and with Jesus Christ as the model of such surrender. You remember verse 4 of Philippians chapter 2? It's been a few weeks since we looked at it. But it might be the most difficult statement in all of this book 
and quite possibly one of the most difficult in all of the New Testament. Because Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4 calls on us to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's not an easy thing to do. And the only way it works is if you surrender your own interests. But Christ did it, and Paul did it, and Paul saying Timothy did it. If they can do this, so can we. More importantly, so must we. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Implicit in that statement is a call to surrender your own will, to surrender your own agenda, to surrender your own purpose, to surrender your own goals so that you can adopt Christ's will and Christ's agenda and Christ's purposes and Christ's goals. It's a call for the rejection of yourself, and that takes absolute surrender. And it's that call, that expectation of surrender, that's the reason there are far too many Christians in this world. Because we live in a society that says it's all about me. It's the Burger King society. Have it your way. But that's not a Christ-like mindset. Because following Christ means I'm going to have it His way. True service, joy-filled service, is willing to surrender what you want because you understand that what he wants is way more important. And Timothy is modeling that. What about you? Do you live in such a way that those around you, whether they're Christians or not, can tell that your interests don't take priority in life? That the interest of someone greater takes priority? Do you live in such a way that Christ is your number one objective in all matters and in all things. Paul would say in the book of Galatians that to, for him to live, uh, that, that he no, it's no longer he that lives, but Christ who lives in him. That's the surrender that's expected of you, and that's the only way you can live in joy-filled service. Because you realize it's not about you. And so if we want to experience joy in service, we have to surrender our interests in favor of His. But joy-filled service also means that we have to be available. Let's talk about Epaphroditus for a little bit. We need to understand why Epaphroditus went to Rome. Because it's easy for us to assume that he only traveled there to deliver some money, if we read the text. But there's more to his story than that. When the Christians in Philippi learned of Paul's situation, they wanted to send Paul some financial assistance while he was under house arrest, but they also wanted to send him some physical assistance. So they not only took up a collection and, and found someone to deliver it, but they found someone who would re remain with Paul for an extended time and help care for Paul's needs. The intent was for Epaphroditus to stay with Paul, to care for Paul during this house arrest. 
And so ultimately, Epaphroditus volunteered to go to Rome to deliver the money, but also to stay there with someone who's in prison or someone who's uh, jailed, in a sense, for the cause of Christ, because not everyone could make that trip. So Epaphroditus attempted to do what others could not or would not do. He was acting on behalf of the Christians in Philippi. And so Paul identified Epaphroditus as your messenger and minister to my need in verse 25. I find it interesting that nowhere is Epaphroditus referred to as a a preacher or an evangelist or a teacher. The Greek term that's employed here for the word minister is not the standard word that Paul usually uses for a minister. Normally he uses the Greek word diakonos, which we translate into deacon. That's his normal word that you'll see translated minister. But here he uses a different word. He uses liturgos. Oh, you all know what liturgos means, right? In ancient Greek culture, a liturgos was an individual who served as a benefactor to his city. One commentator said that such individuals, such liturgoses, which that would not be the correct way to pluralize a Greek word, but that such individuals, because they love their city so much, they would at their own expense undertake certain civic duties. They might defray the expense of building an embassy or defray the expense of the cost of putting on a drama by one of the great poets. Or they might even set about paying for the training of athletes for the next Olympic Games. But a Latorgos ministered by being the one who was the benefactor of others. And what Paul is saying is that Epaphroditus is his Latorgos, is his benefactor who has graciously made himself available for Paul's benefit. See, I think this makes Epaphroditus stand out because if Epaphroditus were like many Christians today, his response to being asked to go to Rome might have been something like this. I'm too busy to go right now. I've got too much on my plate. There's so many responsibilities I've got to take care of, so much going on in my life. I'm just way too busy, I, and I can't afford to make that trip right now. I'm saving up for this or that, or I've got these expenses or these bills to pay. I don't have the time, the, the energy, or the money to sacrifice for this. I mean, Paul's got Timothy there, doesn't he? He's, he's got somebody there. He, he's good. He really doesn't need me. Somebody else can take care of his need for right now, but I can't go. How many of us would have responded that way? How many of us would have found all of the optional excuses we could come up with to avoid such a commitment? How many of us would have made ourselves unavailable for any and every reason? Heard a story about a young man who was attending college to become a preacher. And he was looking for a congregation he could preach at while in school. And someone suggested to him a small congregation out in the country somewhere, and he went and preached there for a few Sundays. And then he started to complain about it because he felt that that little old church out in the country was beneath his ability. And someone overheard him complaining, and they said, 
you know what? The world's a better place because Michelangelo didn't say, I don't do ceilings. Now think about that in a grander scheme. See, we're blessed because God's servants made themselves available. Noah never said, I don't do boats. Abraham didn't say, I don't do circumcision. Ruth didn't say, I don't do mothers-in-laws. David didn't say, I don't do giants. John the Baptist didn't say, I don't do deserts. Peter learned not to say, I don't do Gentiles. And Paul didn't say, I don't do mission trips. Most importantly, Jesus didn't say, I don't do crosses. See, our attitude should be the same as Isaiah, who in, in chapter 6 and verse 8 of his, his, of his prophetic work said, whom shall I, in response to God asking, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. In other words, Isaiah volunteered. Isaiah made himself available. Isaiah said, I'm ready and willing to do what you need me to do because first and foremost, I'm your servant. Do you go through each day with that available mindset? Do you wake up each morning and think to yourself, how can I be available for God to use me today? How can I be available to serve someone else today? Or are your days marked off, unavailable? Because if we want to be like Isaiah, if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be like any of the heroes of Scripture, we have to be available to serve. Because availability is part of how we experience joy and service. <clears throat> and one final thought, stemming from Epaphroditus, we learn that service requires sacrifice. See, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 30, Paul indicated that Epaphroditus was risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That term translated risking comes from a Greek word that refers to throwing or casting something. In this context, it means deliberately throwing oneself into a dangerous situation. So what Paul is ultimately saying is that Epaphroditus willingly exposed himself to danger. And the point here is that joy-filled service necessitates risk. Joy-filled service has a cost. Joy-filled service requires a willingness to make a sacrifice. When it comes to Epaphroditus, Paul makes it very clear that he was willing to sacrifice his life in order to serve. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, we learn that Epaphroditus became ill, and his illness was so severe that he was near to death. He almost died from a physical ailment. But it didn't stop him from making it to Rome. He still went to Rome. And I don't think this is the only thing that risked his life, that this, this, this illness that he contracted, I don't think that's the only risk he faced. Because when he arrived, uh, arrived in Rome, think about what he's doing. He's going to visit somebody who's under house arrest waiting to appeal his case before Caesar. Visiting Paul wouldn't be like going down to the county jail and visiting an inmate. It's more complicated than that. This is a time when Christianity isn't acceptable in Rome. So to associate with Paul for the purpose of serving him was to put a mark on yourself. Would you be willing to risk your own safety in order to serve someone else? 
See, Epaphroditus knew that he was endangering himself through his relationship with Paul, and it took courage for him to go to Rome, but he was willing to take that risk because he was a true servant. I think one aspect of becoming a follower of Christ that gets overlooked is the cost aspect. We are so quick to teach the steps of salvation, which are necessary to teach. But how much time do we spend on the, hey, think about the cost? Because Jesus spent a lot of time on it. Listen, look with me at Luke chapter 14. Look at what he said. Luke chapter 14, verses 27 through 33, as I can tell my voice is starting to go out. Luke chapter 14, verses 27 through 33. Whoever does not bear his own cross, (coughs) oh my, (coughs) and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great, far, great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be men of disciple. These two illustrations are posing, this, posing the same question, but going about it differently. Wow. <clears throat> the first illustration, the builder is free to build or not to build. He has the choice to do something or to not do something. In other words, the builder has the option to be inactive if he wants to be. His choice will be based on whether or not he can afford to build. And I think what Jesus is saying is that everyone must decide for himself or herself whether or not they're willing to incur the cost of following him. And then the second illustration, the one about the king. The king's being invaded, so he has to do something. He can go to war or he can broker peace but he can't do nothing. He has to do something. So his choice must be based on whether or not it's more cost-effective to go to war or to negotiate peace. And I think what Jesus is saying is that everyone must decide for himself or herself whether or not they're willing to incur the cost of refusing to follow him. So you have to think about it. If you become a disciple, you automatically become a servant. Are you willing to take the risks? Are you willing to incur the costs? Are you willing to make the sacrifices that come with serving? Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There is a cost. There is a risk. There is a sacrifice that comes with choosing to serve. But it's the only way to experience the joy that comes with service. There is absolute joy in service when you realize who you're serving. Do you notice in verse 21 of Philippians 2 that Timothy was a model servant because unlike others, He didn't seek his own interests, but he sought the interests of Christ. And Epaphroditus was a model servant because he nearly died for the work of Christ. 
Both of these servants understood that their service wasn't about themselves, nor was it about the people they served. Joy-filled service is about the one who receives the glory because of your service. So I want to close with Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. There is joy in service, but that's not the question today. The question today is, are you a servant? Are you living a servant's life? Are you genuinely concerned about others? Are you willing to make sacrifices for the benefit of others? Are you making yourself available for others? Joy-filled service exists, and joy-filled service is rewarded. But are you a joy-filled servant? If not, what do you need to do right now to become one? What do you need to do right now to reserve your place in heaven where God's servants will serve him eternally? Maybe you need to make the decision to become a permanent servant by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe that's where you need to start. Right now we offer this invitation for you to be a joy-filled servant. If you need to respond today, we encourage you to do so while together we stand and sing. I am